Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Five seconds is a long time in politics these days. So after initially recording the show, we swiftly heard the news that Suella Braverman has been sacked. Luckily, Roz Taylor is back with me to give her live reaction. And then by the magic of editing, we'll go back to the usual show. Roz, this is a bit of a surprise in a way, isn't it? But really, should it be given all of the events of the weekend? No, it isn't really, given that she was pushing and pushing and clearly almost asking to be sacked, particularly with that article in The Times, where she said that the pro-Palestinian march on Saturday was a hate march and compared it in a very clumsy and inappropriate comparison to marches in Northern Ireland. So it did look as if she was almost daring Sunak to get rid of her. Why has he done it then if it's exactly what she wants? Did it just become to a point where he had to give her what she wants, even if for him it might put him in a bit of a politically compromising position? Because she was making him look weak, essentially. She was making him look indecisive and as if she was able to say whatever the hell she wanted and get away with it. And that was why he really had to act. And he also needs a bit of a reset at this point. You know, the polls are still very, very bad for the Tories. She's personally, among the wider population, very unpopular. Of course, among certain sections of the Tory party, she is very popular. What will this mean for Sunak now then? Could it actually be a a good thing for him? He gets to look like a bit of a tough guy and refresh things or, you know, he's tried to do that plenty of times. It's never really worked, has it? Yeah, it's an attempt to stamp his authority on the party again. And I think it will be reasonably successful from the points from this point of view only that I don't think any backbenchers and even junior ministers and cabinet members are going to be stupid enough to resign because Suella Braverman has been sacked. Because what alternative have they got? You know, are they really suggesting that she ought to be installed now as the new prime minister? (laughs) Is that the hill that they're going to die on? She's got even less chance of winning an election than he has. It would be extraordinary to do that. So from the point of view of getting rid of an irritant and trying to cement his authority, yes. Is she going to be able to lead any sort of rebellion then, do you think? I mean, not maybe from the resignation standpoint, but will she go to the backbenches and start making trouble in a a tangible way? Or is it just going to be sort of slinging insults from the sidelines, really? Yeah, I mean, she absolutely will. I mean, we've already seen this year a number of conferences organised by the people further right in the Conservative Party with various predilections, which are designed to try and thrash out an agenda for a Conservative Party post-election, should they lose next year, which they almost certainly will. Now, she is one of the figures who has been you know, present and contributing to that to that debate. And she clearly wants to carve out a niche for herself as the next leader of the Conservative Party. And it is clear what kind of leader she would be. And it is clear that she would drag the party further to the right, even than it has been dragged in the last decade. So that's her plan. I think she will not be quiet. And there will be plenty of people openly or less openly in the Conservative Party and cheerleading for her in the media. It will be very important to see what attitude the papers like The Mail and The Telegraph and The Times take towards Suella Braverman, because they will indicate whether or not her views and her vision for the Conservative Party can become part of the mainstream of British political thinking, or whether they are just too much. Of course, there's also the threat that Nigel Farage, currently, I believe, 
preparing to appear on uh, a reality TV program for a very large fee might want to take over the Conservative Party. Some Conservative members might be very happy about that. I don't think many of the actual party and the MPs would be. <laughs> Suella Braverman would be uh, an alternative to that who would be equally vociferous on the subject of things like migration and small boats and, and all, all these right-wing issues. Ros, thanks for coming back and joining me. Thank you. Now, listeners, we're going to return to the main show we recorded earlier with Alex Andreu. Before that, a quick reminder, we are running a listener survey to find out what you enjoy about The Bunker. There's a link at the top of the show notes so you can click through and let us know exactly what you want from our podcasts. Moving to the economic side, Number 10 is apparently preparing for a big media blitz this week, as they expect they might reach the target of halving inflation, which is, of course, not the target. The target is 2%, but halving inflation is this arbitrary target that Sunak set for himself at the, the start of the year. But growth data looks incredibly sluggish. Is there a danger for Sunak and Hunt that if they crow too much about their plan working, they will simply amplify calls for tax cuts in the upcoming statement from the backbenches. Yes, there is that danger. And of course, the inflation figures, it's worth pointing out, will be pretty artificially low this week because they were extremely high a year ago due to a massive rise in energy bills. So it's a little bit misleading. Inflation is falling. That is absolutely true. But is it falling by as much as it should be? Arguably, no. In terms of tax cuts, yes, those calls are already coming. And in the papers today, we see calls for cuts to business taxes, stamp duty, inheritance taxes, as ways of, of using what some of them describe as some fiscal headroom that the government has, probably due to the fact that they haven't changed the tax brackets for income tax. So more and more people are pulled into paying more when they are paying uh, national insurance and income tax. But it does seem extraordinary on the face of it that these are the things you would go for, given the state of the NHS. I know, right? That was my first thought. If you have headroom, pay junior doctors properly so that the strikes stop and we begin to reduce the waiting list. Surely that is the priority. Yeah, well, they needed a billion to offset the effect of the doctor strikes, which they refused to give, basically, because they were strikes. And so they argued that they shouldn't give that. And of course, the result is that the waiting lists get ever longer. Now, on a slight tangent, listeners should look out for Francis Maud's review of Whitehall, which is also out today. Apparently, proposals include someone from the private sector coming in to run the whole shebang. But hold on, isn't that what Cummings was? How did that work out? In any case, it should make for interesting reading. On a second tangent, I want to talk to you, Ros, about a, a faked audio of Sadiq Khan that was doing the rounds on Saturday, where he suggests that pro-Palestinian march should go ahead and remembrance should be moved. Obviously, it wasn't real. But the Met Police says this is not a crime in any way. So I wanted to ask, with an election months away, how prepared are we for such deep fakes? Yeah, I mean, we're not prepared at all. The technology, the, the software that you need in order to create these fakes is getting cheaper and cheaper and easier to use. And this is not the first time this has happened. Of course, Keir Starmer's mm. voice was also impersonated. There are a number of things going on here legally, which 
are probably the reasons why the Met decided this couldn't be prosecuted. Firstly, is that impersonation is not a crime in English law unless it's of a police officer or a solicitor. The other thing to bear in mind is that there will be a very readily available defence for people doing this by them saying that it is satire. And of course, people routinely impersonate other people for the purposes of satire, and that's not something that we want to stop. Hmm. That will make it especially difficult to prosecute cases like this. So there is a need for new law on this because the potential for it to spread you know, like wildfire during election campaign, and crucially as well, for people not to realise that it's a fake because so many of us occupy quite small, narrow media silos where mm. we don't see the results of fact-checking, for example. So if you're, you know, if you don't consume BBC News anymore, if you don't consume mainstream news and you just see something like this on WhatsApp, then you're going to buy it. You're going to buy it. And even if you even if you they're then told it's a fake, you are actually more likely to think, oh, well, it's the kind of thing he would have said. And because it's, of course, done, yeah, but it's because it's so, it's in the voice of the person, apparently in the voice of the person being impersonated, it has an effect on your impression of them. And the next time they speak, it is extremely insidious. And there needs to be a lot more work done on this because it will become more and more of an issue. But yeah, I mean, it has, of course, only really been targeted against left-wing politicians at the moment. Uh, if it was targeted against the right, I wonder if more would be done. Hmm, maybe. Um, uh, talking of deep fakes, have you been wrapped by the serialization of Nadine Doris's book? Oh, God. No, <laughs> no I have not. I'm actually quite concerned about this woman, to be honest. I mean, I was, I was initially quite outraged as a Bond fan that she had managed to lift so many Bond tropes and yes. uh, her chapter headings. There are two really worrying things. The first is that the some of the scenes she describes in pubs around Westminster where mysterious informants tell her things seem so extraordinarily outlandish. <laughs> the second is that she has created her own extraordinary conspiracy theory where all the recent political developments in the UK in, in the last 20 years or so have been masterminded by an individual whom she uh, does not name and there are rumours about, but nothing concrete. Yeah. And this is just a buy-in to the kind of conspiracies that are increasingly taking over political thinking. I mean, this isn't QAnon, let's be clear, but it's QAnon almost adjacent. Why yes. is a woman who is in her position, who was in the cabinet, able to disseminate this kind of stuff? It's extremely worrying, frankly. Yes, the whole thing is just bizarre. I mean, these incredibly all-powerful organizations existing in the background that basically have the power to bring down any prime minister, but they don't have the power to put the prime minister they wanted in place in the first place, which would seem to me a simpler solution for an organization that omnipotent. Let's look at a little bit of a wider focus. What is the latest from the Israel-Hamas front? There is extremely worrying news from the Al-Shifa hospital in the Gaza Strip, which is now uh, unable to function, they say, due to lack of fuel and bombings and snipers all around. And of course, the babies who were in intensive care have had to be taken out of intensive care. 
and they are trying to keep them warm, but there is every chance that many of them will die. So the ground offensive continues and the suffering continues. The US, however, is now telling Israel to stop targeting places like hospitals on the front of the FT. And Sunak is making a speech today, I think, setting out his roadmap to a two-state solution. So I just wonder, are we seeing a new phase in international reaction to what's going on in Gaza, with support beginning to be a little bit qualified? Yes, I think even more than that. Early on in the in this conflict, I remember reading that Israel knew it had a quite a narrow window to act and do what it wanted before international outrage kicked in. Indeed, that is beginning to happen. We've seen France, President Macron, urging Israel to stop killing women and babies. We've seen the US position being firmed up a bit recently, where they say that there should be no forced displacement of Palestinians. In other words, no Israeli permanent occupation of the Gaza Strip, which is effectively saying, guys, you have to come up with a plan for what you are going to do after you finish bombing Gaza. And you need to you need to What's decide. What's your off ramp here? You know, exactly, you got yeah. you got the angry bit out of the way. Now, what is the actual policy? You mentioned France. There was a big march against anti-Semitism in France yesterday. How important is that kind of solidarity? What is it? It is important, and it's, however, been marred by disputes in France. So fundamentally, there's been a kind of switch of position almost in France, where the far Mm. right now joined this anti-Semitism march. Macron himself did not attend, probably because he felt he didn't need to. His view on Israel is is fairly clear, and his opposition to anti-Semitism is is clear. But Marine Le Pen and uh, the Rassemblement National, the former National Front, joined the people who didn't join were the far left. So the political party called La France Insoumise, which is led by uh, Mélenchon, declared that they did not. And of course, that is reminiscent, of course, of all kinds of uh, issues with the far left and uh, Mm. anti-Semitism in the UK. But it did show that there was not unity across French society, which was not good to see. Was there any reaction from you know, Jewish uh, civil societies in France. The the Front National has a really long history of anti-Semitism. Is this someone they are happy now to share a platform with, as it were, and and look look to as allies? No, many of them are not. And I think some of them felt that the march had been hijacked by Mm. these people because, of course, in particular, Marine Le Pen's uh, father, uh, Jean-Marie, was uh, distinctly anti-Semitic. And it mm. does look like an opportunistic move on their now, part and an attempt to portray themselves as more mainstream and ready for power and having moved away from that anti-Semitic past. Hmm. Now, on that sort of political manoeuvring around this issue, on these shows, we see the SNP tabling an amendment to the loyal address calling for a ceasefire. The move seems designed to embarrass Labour. How difficult will this be for Starmer? It is a decision that he needs to make about whether to whip his MPs to vote against the amendment 
or whether to allow them a free vote. And that could go either way. And uh, either way will create problems for him inevitably. If he whips them, then some will defy or potentially defy the whip. If he doesn't, he'll be accused of not being in control of his party. So it's lose-lose, really, for Starmer on this point. Polls have not moved an inch in the Tories' favour since the attack on Israel and this whole thing starting. There was some thinking, I think, that the, the... issue would affect Labour negatively. In fact, Paul seemed to be moving back in favour of Labour. I mean, is it just that foreign policy issues just don't cut through for most voters? Is that what's going on? Or or has Starmer handled it quite well? I think they certainly do cut through for voters, but they cut through when the politicians involved actually have agency. And to an extent also when people feel directly threatened. Now, neither of those things really applies in the moment in the Israel-Hamas war. Mm. People know, I think, full well that whatever Starmer says about Israel-Hamas is going to be roundly ignored by both Israel and Hamas. What Sunak says he may be paid a little bit more attention to, but nothing like the clout that yeah. the US, for example, Only a has. little bit more. Yeah. And even the US is struggling to, I think, to make inroads when it comes to Israeli politicians. So that doesn't apply. Also, of course, when people feel threatened, as we saw during the pandemic, and nervous and frightened, they'd have a tendency to rally around the flag and stick with what they know. That is not happening either, because the Um, the conflict does not feel like an imminent threat to the safety of people in Britain. Mm, mm. So I think that's why it's not really having an effect on the polls. Mm, Fascinating. Now, President Biden is meeting Chinese Premier Xi Jinping on Wednesday in San Francisco. I think it's the first face-to-face meeting in just over a year. It's Xi's first visit to the US in over six years, I think. Is this an indication of a thawing in relations or does it have to do with all these other fronts that are opening up that they both feel that, you know, (laughs) they shouldn't be at each other's throats during all this? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's definitely an element of thawing. It's a bit like taking something out of the freezer and putting it in the fridge. I mean, it's it's not <laughs> going to be a massive <laughs> defrost. But of course, after the low point of the Chinese spy balloon affair back in February, when things looked really bad for US-Chinese relations, it is trying to get back things back on track after that. And they will be discussing a whole ro- raft of of issues that always no nothing seems to be off the table. I mean, there's Ukraine, mm. obviously, there's trade, there's even the drug trade and fentanyl, there's Taiwan, naturally, there's North Korea and uh, Russia's support for it. There's AI, uh, there's even the Philippines, apparently, which the US is anxious to say is, is uh, as far as it's concerned, it must be protected, Indo-Pacific. So it's... Um, it's it's a very wide ranging potentially meeting, and I don't I wouldn't expect anything much to actually come out of it. But it will be the two leaders talking to each other again, which in itself will be a step forward. Hmm. Now to round things off this morning, let's dive into the natural disaster section of the news. A storm Debbie with an eye is about to batter the UK. Barely two weeks after the last big storm. How super well prepared for this one is Therese Coffey, do you think, considering the rain is coming from the right direction this time? 
Well, <laughs> given the number of <laughs> storms that we have had this autumn, I mean, it's, it's hard for anybody to be prepared. But in particular, I understand that she may be at risk if there's a reshuffle. So she may see herself swept away in the next couple of days. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's going to really hit the Lake District uh, in particular and Northern Ireland pretty hard. Yeah. It's going to be difficult because water levels are high, the ground is sodden still and all of that. So our best wishes. Yeah, I was I was in the Lake District last week and it was certainly the ground was very much sodden already. So mm. yeah. And and finally the Fagradalsfjall volcano in Iceland is threatening to erupt. Uh, geologists say it is now a matter of when rather than if. Now, uh, memories of the Ayafjalla Jökull eruption in 2010 and the air travel chaos it caused are still fresh in most people's minds. Should we expect similar or is this a, a, a different uh, sort of order of magnitude? Yes, this does look very likely. The the town of Grindavik has been evacuated and there are some really startling pictures circulating of mm. the chasms that are opening up. Apparently there's a magma, new magma tunnel that has opened up under Iceland. It does look like it's starting to enter the kind of phase that Italy was in about 2,000 years ago with more regular eruptions. In terms of the impact, yeah, we, it's hard to say. They, the predictions I've seen suggest that the impact on air traffic control might not be as great as it was when the previous eruption a decade ago. But of course, that was very, very extensive with almost all air traffic shut down for about a week over Europe. Yeah. So we just don't know. And it must be terrifying. They're waiting to see what's happening and where the magma will emerge. Okay. And if the storms and the volcanoes don't get you, there are also lions roaming the streets. Um, so with that, I anoint you once again fully prepped to start your week. If you enjoyed it, remember to tune in for another bunker tomorrow, and you can support our getting up far too early to do this for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. You'll have our gratitude, lots of benefits, and a shout-out on this show. Here are some now. Many thanks to Andrew Martinez, Simon Fathers, and Oliver Williamson. Thank you, Ros, and thanks to you for listening to Start Your Week. Don't forget to fill in our listener survey. The link is in the show notes. Have a great one. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor, Alex Andreu and Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week is a Podmasters production. <laughs>